2 Timothy 2, 1-13 You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier for Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, we're looking at is the kind of people God really wants us to be and 2 Timothy 2 is just fantastic for showing it. You'll see that there are three things that God really wants us to be as a people and the first one is He wants us to be strong in grace. So have a look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. Paul says, you then my son be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The first thing Paul points Timothy to is grace. And you can see what he means by just flipping back to chapter 1 for a minute. Have a look in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. See what the grace in Christ Jesus is? It's that He saved us, in verse 9, called us to a holy life. In verse 10, Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. In other words, God's grace is you will never die because Jesus died for you. And in verse 9, it's not because of anything any of us have done. God didn't choose us because somehow we're more worthy or we're more lovely than anyone else. It's not, it's not like a draft where God thought, oh, I'd love to have that person on my football team. No, God chose us when we had absolutely nothing to offer. And look, we want grace to be absolutely at the beating heart of our church, don't we? Every single Sunday when we come to church, we need to be reminded God doesn't love you because you are lovely. He loves you because you're loving, because He's loving. And the great thing about that kind of love is you can't lose it because you didn't earn it. Our sin doesn't destroy God's love for us because our obedience was never the basis of God's love for us. We want to comfort each other with grace when we sin, don't we? God loved you before you sinned. We want our children 
growing up knowing grace. We want them to grow up knowing God doesn't love them because they're a good kid. God loves them because He's a loving Father. We want our kids to grow up with the freedom to fail, the freedom to learn how to walk in Christ. We want people to walk in and the first thing they notice about us is grace. Here's a people who are so celebrating God's grace, so gripped by God's grace, they even confess their sin. They love to confess when they've done the wrong thing because they're absolutely assured of God's forgiveness. Here are people who so understand God's grace that they love to forgive each other. It, it slurps over from God right into all of their relationships. We want to be a church that's gripped by grace, don't we? I pray that we'll never become a church that's driven by guilt or by duty. Sometimes guilt and duty can actually be helpful things, can't they? When I've sinned, I do need to know my guilt before God because that drives me to Christ for forgiveness. And I do need to know that I owe God my obedience, that I have a duty to Him because He's my, my God and Jesus is my Lord. It's not that guilt and duty are bad, but we want grace to swamp them, don't we? We want grace to smother them. I obey because, yes, it's my duty, but I love obedience because Jesus saved me and called me to a holy life. I acknowledge my sin and I, and, and I obey God out of this sense of, of duty, but it's swamped by this sense of God loves me. That's the kind of church we want to be, isn't it? I pray that it's the kind of church we are. And I'm sorry for when we're not that. And of course, grace really does help us to think about the building, doesn't it? For one, the building is actually just another sign of God's grace to us. I love the fact that God gave us the building that we weren't even asking for. We'd stop looking for a building that would, act, that would work for our whole church, for Newey and Lake Mac. We, were, we didn't think we could afford it. We never thought we could find a building that was central enough and large enough and within our price range for everyone. But in His grace, God just said, well, here, here's this building that's better than you actually had the faith to ask for. I love that. It's actually a sign of God's grace. Another way grace, though, carries us through the building is God loves you whether or not you give to this. See, some of us, we're not in a position to be able to give anything to the building. It might be that you don't have any money to give. It might be that you gave last time and you are completely tapped out. There is nothing left to give. Or it might be that you're new and you don't feel comfortable to give yet. You don't feel like you've got the relationship. And you wonder, do I belong here if I can't give yet? And this is where grace comes in, isn't it? We're not members of God's church and God's family because we've somehow bought our way in. No, you're a loved member of our family regardless of whether you give to the campaign or not. If you're completely tapped out from last time, if you're not in a position to give, can I say, pray. Pray that people will be able to give, pray that God will look after us, but don't feel any sense of compulsion or duty, because we want to be a people of grace. Mind you, one weird thing about this that I haven't actually pointed to yet is, did you notice how Paul calls Timothy to be strong in grace? Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That, that idea sounds a little weird, doesn't it? It sounds like a contradiction because grace is something you, you accept in weakness. 
to be strong in grace actually sounds like a contradiction. But I think in Paul's mind, God's grace is something that gives us strength. When you know God's grace, it enables you to do things you otherwise would not be able to do. And the next two things that God calls us to do are actually really hard. They're really challenging things, but we do them in grace and because of grace. Because the second thing God wants us to be in this passage is a people who pass on the message of grace. So look from verse 1 again. He says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who'll also be qualified to teach others. See, Paul says, I want you to be strong in the grace, and the thing he moves to is handing on this message to other people so that they can teach it too. And in fact, this whole idea of handing on the gospel is absolutely central to, to, to Timothy because Paul knows that he is at the end of his life. So in chapter 4, he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. See how Paul talks about his life there? He actually talks about his life as if it's already over. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. His death is so near that for him, it's present tense. And his big concern in this book is, who is going to preach the gospel behind me? Who are going to be this next generation that take the gospel out to the world? And so in chapter 1, verse 8, he says to Timothy, so do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord Jesus or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul calls Timothy, come and join with me in suffering for this gospel. In 1.13, he says, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In chapter 4, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who'll judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Do you see Paul's big concern here? From the doorstep of death itself, he's calling Timothy to come forward. Join, be the next generation that preaches the gospel. And yet here's the thing. It's not just Timothy that Paul's thinking about. Paul's actually thinking four generations down the line. Because look what Paul says in verse 2 of our passage, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. He says, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who'll be qualified to teach others. So there's four generations there, isn't there? Paul taught, Timothy heard, he passes it on to reliable people who'll then be qualified to teach others. See, that's the thing about Christians we're not just interested in preaching the gospel to our generation. We want to be thinking three and four generations down the line. I'll tell you, this is far more important than any building will ever be. We need to be making decisions in our generation that will help the next two or three generations preach the gospel. 
we need to be making the decisions now that will help our grandkids to preach the gospel. And so the way we respond to issues like gender and freedom of speech and marriage and materialism and greed and lifestyle, all of those things, the decisions we make about those things and the way we respond to them will determine whether our grandkids preach the gospel. Because if we're not brave in our generation, if we're not clear-sighted in our generation, if we don't stand for the gospel in our generation, there's no way that the generations behind us will. They just won't see it as important enough. Our kids won't teach the gospel unless we do it now. So you've heard that old saying, what's taught in the first generation is assumed in the second generation, is forgotten in the third generation, and then is denied or opposed in the fourth generation. So we could believe in grace in our generation. We can teach salvation by grace, we can defend it, But if we don't teach our kids to love it, and if we don't teach them to teach it explicitly and defend it when people preach salvation by works, if they just assume it, then their children after them will forget it and within a generation or two they'll deny it. And so we constantly have to be doing two things as a church. Yes, we have to teach our kids grace. We have to teach our kids the cross. We have to show them the Bible's view of gender. And we've got to teach our kids a Christian view of money. And we've got to help our kids not to live for what the world lives for. We've got to do all of that. We've got to teach the truth to our kids. But we have to go one step further. And I don't think Christian parents generally get this. We have to teach our kids to be teachers of the gospel. Paul says we have to entrust the gospel to them in order that they might hand it on to the next generation. In other words, it's not enough to teach your kids the gospel. You have to teach them to be teachers of the gospel to other people. One of the things I love about HBC youth at the moment is that the youth are actually all being called into serving in ministries themselves. So they've been called into the kids' ministries and rush and youth and they're in bands and they're on tech teams. Parents, you'll look at that and you'll think this is making them busier than they ought to be. This is putting more on their plate than they ought to have. But encourage it. Draw your kids into ministry, into teaching the gospel so that they're not just learning the gospel, they're learning to hand on the gospel. If you want your grandkids to be Christian... Encourage your children not just to believe it, but to teach it, but to pass it on. Now, you can see this is far more important than a building, isn't it? And yet you can see where the building fits. A building is something that will help us to pass the gospel on to the next generation. That is, we're not buying this building so that we can preach in it. We're buying this building so that our children will teach our grandchildren in it. I actually think that's one of the most exciting things about this building. Children who haven't even been born yet are going going to grow up with that as their home. And right from birth, they're going to hear about Jesus in that building. They're going to hear that Jesus, their king, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And they're going to go from kids' church into wave and into youth. And as the world gets even more hostile... It's going to be a place where they are not weird, where they can have the gospel entrusted to them so that they'll pass it on to the next generation. 
That is, a building is not one of the great purposes of God, but it can serve those purposes, can't it? It'll help us to pass the gospel on to the next generation. And yet, for that to happen, it's actually going to require sacrifice. Because the third thing this passage shows us is that we want to be a people, God wants us to be a people who will suffer and sacrifice for the grace of the gospel. So, look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, Anyone who competes as an athlete doesn't receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So you can see why Paul says now, you've got to be strong in the grace. Because in verse 3, he's calling Timothy to join him in making big sacrifices for the gospel, to suffer. And Paul talks about three jobs here, three professions that all involve a certain amount of suffering and sacrifice in different ways. So in verse 4, there's the focus, the disciplined focus of the soldier. Look in verse 4, he says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. See, Paul talks about how the soldier, he can't get involved in civilian affairs. He can't go off and get a part-time job. The soldier can't have a hobby that he's pouring his life into because the soldier has got to be on duty. And again, long before we ever get to a building, this passage is incredibly helpful for me personally. I really feel the tug of all of the civilian affairs, don't you? Those five Ps that the world are constantly chasing, the paycheck, the postcode, the possessions, the prestige, the pleasure... They're the, they're the things that the world lives for. I've got to get the highest paying job that I can so that I can buy the nicest house possible and fill it with the greatest number of the nicest possessions that I can so that people will admire me, I've got prestige, and then I can just live my life for myself. That's pleasure. And I'll be honest, I really feel the pull of those things. And if I'm really honest with you, I sometimes resent that I'm not able to have them. And that's why the image of a soldier is really helpful. Because the soldier image reminds me that I'm different to all of my friends. I'm not a civilian. I signed up for service. When I became a Christian, I signed up to become one of Jesus' soldiers. I've enlisted. And so I shouldn't actually be expecting to live like a civilian lives. My life is about pleasing my commanding officer. See, the civilian gets to live to please themselves. They are their own general. But the soldier can't do that, can he? The soldier has to obey their commanding officer. I have sworn to serve Jesus and his gospel as a Christian. When I became a Christian, I signed up to be on mission with Jesus, to come when he calls and to go where he sends. And at the end of my life, I'm looking for my commanding officer's praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, the soldier image actually helps us to see the positive side of duty. Remember I said earlier, we don't want to be driven by duty. We want to be a church that's captured by grace. And it's funny, in that soldier image, we actually feel a tension with duty, don't we? To be a soldier is to to be bound in duty. How does that fit with grace? I'm saved by grace. Jesus loves me by grace. 
And yet I've got this commanding officer. How do those two fit together? Well, it fits together because it's by grace that I get to be one of Jesus' soldiers and not one of his enemies. By nature, I'm a rebel. By nature, what I deserve is to be Jesus' defeated enemy. By grace, Jesus has called me to serve under him instead of conquering me. You see, grace doesn't make me the Lord of my own life. Grace means that I get to have the best commanding officer ever, the one who died for his soldiers. All of this, though, it really does bring the building into sharper focus, though, doesn't it? Because the building will mean sacrifice. It'll mean having, having to give up things that the civilians take for granted. Giving to the building might mean that you're not able to take the holiday. Giving to the building might mean that you need to upgrade the car later. It might mean that you need to extend the mortgage another five years. Giving to this means that we can't have and do what the civilians have and do. And I'll be honest with you, if I didn't think that the building really would serve our commanding officer's mission, I couldn't stand here and ask you to give to it. I certainly couldn't give to it myself. It's only because I'm really convinced that this will serve our commanding officer's mission that we're giving to it. And in order to help us, one of the things I'm going to do is share how our family has approached the whole idea of giving to this as people who, soldiers who serve, serve our commanding officer. And I'm actually going to break one of the golden rules of our culture and tell you how much we're giving. And it's awkward. I had to wrestle with this during the last campaign because money is an awkward topic and also I had to wrestle with it because of Matthew 6. You know, Matthew 6, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites in the synagogues do and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's an incredibly helpful passage, isn't it? Jesus says, do your giving in secret which is why I really hesitate, have always hesitated with talking about how much Emma and I plan to give. Until I was challenged by another pastor to look a little bit more closely at this passage and what Jesus is saying. Why does Jesus tell us to give secretly? It's about motive, isn't it? In verse 1, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. See, that's what Jesus is criticizing. It's not being seen, it's doing it in order to be seen. In verse 2, it's the person who wants to be honored. They want the reward of other people's praise. And Jesus says, well, if you do that, you will be rewarded by people, but your heavenly Father won't reward you for what you've done. But what if your motive is not to be rewarded by people? What if your motive is the glory of God? Because look what Jesus says in the very same sermon. 
He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, there Jesus says good deeds can't be hidden. They shouldn't be hidden. Good deeds should be on show to the world, not so that you'll be praised, but so that God will be. So that the motive is absolutely crucial. If you think you will do righteousness in order to be seen, then do it in secret. But if you think that it will bring glory to God, then let the world see it. And if your motive is to encourage people as their pastor, as their leader, well, look what Paul says to Timothy. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in conduct, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. See, a big part of leadership is setting the example for people in speech, in life, in love, in faith and purity and generosity is part of that, isn't it? As a leader, I ought to be setting you an example in my handling of money. That's why we've always said our personal finances are open to anyone who wants to come and examine them. And so even though I would much rather not tell you how much we're planning to give, I think it's important that I do, that I talk about how it is that we've come to our decision. And I don't expect anyone else in church to do it. No one else is going to do it as far as I know, although Sam might talk about it this afternoon at PM. And as soon as I'm the pastor of Hunter Bible Church, I'm not doing it anywhere. So how has our, our family approached this? Well, our first principle as we approached it is, God owns everything in our lives anyway. Every day since the last campaign, at 10 a.m., an alarm has gone off on my phone getting me to pray that God will help me to be generous with my money. I started at the beginning of the last campaign and for the last four and a half years, every day at 10 o'clock, I ask God, please help me to be more generous with my money. Which leads to the second principle that we operated with, which was that we wanted to take moderate risks that force us to trust God. We don't want to be reckless, we have four kids, I don't want to be reckless with them, but I do want to give an amount that really forces us to trust God with our future. And so Emma and I sat down and we had our first conversation and we thought, we both agreed that a prudent amount of money for us to give during this campaign was $10,000. We thought, yep, that's a prudent amount, we can find a way to give that. And then, because everything we own belongs to God, and because we wanted to force ourselves to trust God, we said, let's go away and think and pray about it separately. And so, we both went away, and we thought about it, and we both came back with a number, and I said to Emma, what's your number? And she said, look, I just think and pray, I just think that we should give $25,000. That feels like an amount that would force us to trust God. And I said, great, let's go with that, because my figure had only been twenty. And who's going to argue with a wife who's more generous than they are? The next question was, how are we going to do it? Which led to our third principle, and that is we want generosity to force us to be creative, rather than to accept what look like normal constraints. See, we don't actually have $25,000. 
we don't have it in savings, we don't have investments. And so giving out of those things just wasn't an option. And so we thought about selling the children. <laughs> and then we realised we'll probably need them to look after us after we've given away our money. <laughs> and so the creative option for us was to give $25,000 over the next two and a half years. So the card that we all got in our envelope asked for the figure that we'll give by the middle of next year. And by then, we'll have given a little over $10,000. But we're going to keep our giving going until the end of 2023 so that we can increase it to $25,000, which means that just for the next two and a half years, about $200 a week will come out. And we told our kids, we had a great conversation with them this week. We said, this is going to affect daily life. Holidays, you know, we're certainly not going to be going... Uh, on expensive holidays, eating out, things like that are going to become rarer. And it was lovely to see the kids say, no, we think this is important. We're willing to make those sacrifices. Especially given that selling them was one of the ones on the block anyway. So, let's... so that's our figure. And I don't tell you that so that you'll think anything about me because the likelihood is loads and loads of people in our church will give more than we can. But my goal as, a pa as your pastor is to model for you trying to be a soldier of Jesus Christ, whose mind is on the mission, not what civilians live for. The second way that we suffer and sacrifice, though, we're moving more quickly from here on in, is the obedience of the athlete. So have a look in verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Now, that's really helpful, isn't it? As we try and do this whole building thing, we're competing according to Jesus' rules, not the world. So the world says, do what you need to do to get the result. Bend rules if you need to. I was chatting with three or four friends the other day. One of them had been the president of a local surf life saving club. They needed to get it recarpeted. The carpenter said, I can do it for you for $450 if it's cash. I can do it for $1,200 if it's put through the books. And everyone on the committee, except for one person who I think was probably a Christian, everyone on the committee said, cash, let's save the money. The other guy said, look, I just don't feel right about that. And they all said, you're an idiot. That's the way the world competes. The world competes of get the thing done in the cheapest possible way, even if we have to bend the rules. We play by Jesus' rules. That means we don't want to lie and cheat as we get the building. Can I say to you, do nothing dishonest or illegal in order to give. The third way we suffer is the hard work of the farmer, though. Verse 6, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And again, the kingdom is always hard work, isn't it? Even without a building, the kingdom is always hard work. It's always writing Bible studies and writing youth talks and turning up early to open up church. It's always setting up chairs and then packing them away again. And in fact, that's one way that the building will mean less work for us. Won't it be wonderful to not have to set up chairs every Sunday and to pack them away? Won't it be wonderful to just have something where they can plug the instrument straight into the sound thing and it just all works? And won't it be great they're laughing because that's not likely to happen? <laughs> but it will for your grandchildren. Won't it be great to have a place where we can have morning tea without putting the coffee machine away again because someone will pinch it if we leave it out the front of church? In some ways, the building is going to mean less work. 
But in other ways, I can promise you, you will be asked to give to this building for the next 50 years, when you'll hand it over to your children to give to the building for the entirety of their lifetimes. We're going to be spending money on a building for the rest of our, our lives and our children's lives, because it's just the nature of a building, it's the nature of an asset. The thing is, it's actually worth it for the kingdom, isn't it? It's worth it for our Lord's mission. I'm convinced the very best thing about the building is not bricks and mortar. The very best thing about the building is it gives us the opportunity to think about who we want to be. It forces us to think, what kind of church does does God want Hunter Bible Church to be? And it's a church that's gripped by grace. We love the fact that we're saved by grace. And because we're gripped by grace, we're willing to do the hardest things. Hand on the gospel to the next generation and the one after that and the one after that. Soldiers who gladly turn our back on all the things that the civilians are chasing. Athletes who obey the rules and farmers who bend our back and work. Even without the building, that's the kind of people I'd want to be. The building just gives us an opportunity to become that. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise and thank you for grace. We thank you that you love us not because we are lovely, but because you are loving. We thank you that Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. We thank you that this wasn't because of anything about us but everything about you. And we pray that as a church, we'll be gripped by this. May we not have a culture of duty or guilt. We pray that we would have a culture of celebrating our forgiveness. And we pray that out of grace, we would be willing to do some of the hardest things. We pray that we would make stands in our generation that show the generations behind us the importance of truth. We pray that they would see a bravery in us a willingness to sacrifice, an integrity that shows them the importance of the gospel. And we pray that we would do more than teach our children the gospel, but that we would invite them to become teachers. Thank you that so many of our youth are jumping into ministry leadership. It's so great to see. And we pray for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that they'll be handing the gospel on to their children. And we pray that we would be willing to make sacrifices to gladly turn our backs on the things that the civilians chase after in order to please our commanding officer, to gladly shoulder the burden in order that when Jesus returns, we might celebrate with him and know that we've done everything we can for his glory and majesty. Amen.